You're already recording, are you? I'm already recording. <laughs> I was like, why aren't you pressing the button? I'm sneaky. <laughs> Every time. Oh, goodness. And, and it's funny because you usually have the first topic of the day, but I get caught up. Like, you're like, are you ready? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, go. You're the, one, you're the one that has to start. <laughs> oh, but actually, you are starting today. I am starting. With another topic that could take up the entire episode. Yes. But I'm ready. You only get a little bit, but I'm ready. Okay. So, uh, as we mentioned before, I was in Orlando last weekend for the Olympic Trials Marathon. Uh, I could talk all day about how great it was, but I will not. I do, however, want to highlight... This is supposed to be the, the top 10 performances. How many, how many did you get to? I, I, have, I have a top five and an honorable mention. And then I want to talk about some of the drama. The drama? The drama. There were drums? Yeah. Um, okay, so these are in no, well, no. They're in a particular order. They're not the order that I care about. They're in the order of where these people finished in the race. Okay. It is not the order of, I think, uh, impressiveness. Notoriety. Um, yeah. Some of these, I think, are, like, stood out to me more than others, but I didn't want to, like, <laughs> I didn't want to rank people like that. So. I, I feel you. Okay, I get it. <laughs> um, okay. So just a little recap of the race. It was down in Orlando, Florida. It was supposed to start at noon, but then they pushed it up to 10 a.m. And they pushed it back due to the heat in Florida, but... Honestly, pushing it to 10 did not make any kind of a difference. It started out the day at like 50 degrees. I went out running that morning and it was gorgeous. And then by 10 a.m. it was like mid-60s. By noon it was low 70s and full sun. So it was not ideal. 25% of the runners dropped out due to the heat, which is insane. Because you got to imagine like these are the top runners in the country. And they've already been there for months heat training a lot of them had been there a lot of them had either been in Orlando heat training or a lot of athletes use saunas or other methods to heat train so yes a lot of these runners were training specifically for the heat but even that wasn't enough crazy as a spectator I was too hot like we had tents set up and so like if the runners weren't going by, we had a TV with the live stream in a tent, I would like hide in the tent because it, it was just hot. And so if you're not from like a hot full climate, sun. yeah, like full sun. And as a spectator, like I'm literally just standing there. So I can't imagine running in that. Um, kudos to everyone who honestly got to the starting line and, and did that. Um, okay. Coming in first, I'm going to focus mainly on the women because I am who I am. Coming in first, Fiona O'Keefe. Um, she won the women's race in 2.22.10. This was her first marathon ever. Absolutely insane. You told me that, and <laughs> I thought you were, I thought you were saying like this was her first Olympic trials for the marathon. That this was her first like race for the marathon, but that she still mm-hmm. qualified. You, it's insane. No, this is her first marathon. She qualified with a half marathon time, which happens. It's much less common in the marathon trials. She's a very, very good um, sort of like mid-distance runner, I would say. So she's she does a lot of like 5K, 10Ks, halves. But again, this was her first marathon. 
Unsurprisingly, she's the first woman to win this race as a first timer. <laughs> Another just we could talk all day about the stuff that she accomplished. Well, yes, and we will. She uh, broke the existing women's record for the Olympic trials marathon um, by over three minutes, which at that level of the marathon is insanity. Uh, the previous record was 225.38, set by Shalane Flanagan in 2012. And you'll have to educate me on, is that course-specific? Course no. Or is that any Olympic trials? Any Olympic trials. That's nuts. Mm -hmm. Because each course is different. Some are harder, yeah. some are easier. Obviously, there was the heat to deal with, but that is insane. Yeah. Also insane, she's young. She's 25, so I think everybody is very excited to kind of see where she goes from here. Yep. They talked a lot about that, like the future of the sport. Yeah. So that was, it was super exciting to watch her. Um, she ran a relatively conservative race. She was in the lead pack for most of it, but she took the lead spot. I think it was like mile 18 or 19 and then just created distance. Dusted everybody. Yeah. She, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't close. The last five or six miles, she had a dominant lead. So it was very cool to watch. I'm going to skip to third place. I, uh, I'm not throwing shade to the second place person, um, Emily Sisson. She is incredible, but she was expected to do well, oh, yeah. and so she yep. did well. <laughs> this is all the, the major yeah. notable things that were unexpected and, and insane. Yeah. So coming in third place was Minnesota native Dakota Lindworm. If you don't know her, you should. She is super kind but also just the happiest person I think I've ever watched run she is basically famous for always smiling during races which is absurd she is tiny she's just a little spit of a thing she's like five feet tall anyway she was not expected to place top three I would say probably most people didn't expect her to do top 10 she was a walk-on at Northern State University, a D2 school in South Dakota. So, like, she wasn't she wasn't a standout, like, college runner. When we had talked about last time, like, the school you go to for becoming a professional athlete mm -hmm. matters. Yeah. Especially for distance running. There yeah. was a couple notable schools, and she is not from one of them. Yeah, so, like, compared to Fiona, who came in first, Fiona went to Stanford. And I think, I might get this stat wrong, three of the four top runners like of the of the top four three of them went to stanford like stanford is a huge running school yes. yep and so we have dakota coming in in third who you know didn't commit to a school for running like she just walked on to her division two school but she turned out to be pretty good and after she graduated college she joined minnesota distance elite which is minnesota's sort of premier um running group like professional running group and she ran 225.31 at the trials, which obviously got her third place and a spot on the U.S. Olympic team. It was really fun to watch her run. She kind of was, like, going back and forth with the top pack. So she started out pretty strong, sort of in that top pack. At one point, I think she dropped to, like, 15th or 16th. Jeez. And then obviously made her way back. She looked really good throughout the race. So kudos to Dakota. She's on the Puma team along with Fiona and some of the other runners. They all sort of, as you alluded to, were down in Orlando for three months before the yeah. race training. So they were very heat acclimated. They knew the course, you know, like the back of their hand. So Puma knew what they were doing. Exactly. So good for Dakota. Excited to watch her in the Olympics. 
fourth place I want to talk about. Oh, yes. Jessica oh, yes. McLean. I did not know her before this race. She finished fourth in 225.46, so 15 seconds behind Dakota. And this was a PR of hers for four minutes. Insane. How many, (laughs) you you showed me a bunch of stats, but how many people PR during this race? Oh, I mean, there weren't, but the ones that did, it was insane. Like, this, nobody should have PR'd on this race. Nobody. It was hot. Like, everything was, was against them. Yeah, everything was... Anybody that PR'd, like, you're, whatever you did, you should write a book on. So, Jessica McLean is unsponsored, so she she's not a professional runner. And in an interview after the race, she didn't seem particularly <laughs> interested in getting sponsored. This, this part's my favorite. She also doesn't have a coach. She coaches herself. Okay. <laughs> um, but in the interview, this is right after the race... She also, uh, just total tangent, she didn't know she was in fourth until she got to the home stretch, and she could count the women in front of her, and she was like, neat, I'm in fourth place. <laughs> just the most absurd. It's like, so absurd. She's probably running the whole thing like, wow, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. But in the interview, you know, she gets interviewed, and they're like, you know, was this... They start out like, was this a surprise to you? Are you like, are you impressed by your performance? Yeah. And she's like, no, I'm not surprised at all. Like, I knew I had this in me. <laughs> like, her sheer confidence was amazing because the interviewer just didn't know what to do with it. They were like, oh, okay, Are you, are you sure. surprised you took fourth? No, yeah. not really. Yeah, and so coming in fourth place, she's now an alternate for the U.S. Olympic team, which is a huge accomplishment in itself. And so the interviewer asked her, like, well, how does this, you know, change your plans for the next couple months? The Olympic marathon is in August, so most athletes will kind of take a little bit of time off but go right into training for that. (laughs) And she was like, well, um, I have a trip planned to go to Cabo with my husband, and I really wasn't planning on running a whole lot, so... Take some time off. (laughs) It was... (laughs) She's so funny. And I wrote down a quote from this interview. She says, this is going to sound psychotic, but I didn't want the race to end. I was just soaking everything in. And then I realized I was in fourth. (laughs) I need to bring her energy into like all of my races in the future. Like she was, she was doing exactly what you should be doing in the marathon, which is just living, like working your best, but, but just living. So it's, it's funny because her interview was I think pretty different than the top three, both in the men's finishers and the women's finishers, because they would interview the top three and they were fucking delirious. Oh yeah. Like they don't know where they are. (laughs) They don't know where to stand. They're like looking around. They're like being told where to go and everything. But like all, everything is shutting down as soon as they finish this race. And then they go up and try and have a coherent, like a coherent conversation with them. And they go to, uh, this woman who just took fourth, mm-hmm. like right behind the third place mm-hmm. winner. And she's like, no, this is great. I just wanted to keep running. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I mentioned she's, she's unsponsored. She has absolutely no sponsorship. Like most people have something and like most elites have something. And the interviewer asked her like, well, you know, are you looking for, are you looking to get sponsored? Cause obviously if you finish fourth in the Olympic trials, like, everybody's going to want to sponsor you. Someone might know your name now. And she was like, eh, 
I don't know. Like she's like, I'd be open to it. She's like, I'd be open to it, but I'd want it to like look a little bit differently. Like, you know, I work full time. I think she has her own marketing agency. She's like, so it's not really like a priority of mine. Oh yeah, she said something like, uh, <laughs> if you're open to something that's a little bit different. <laughs> anyway, she's she sounds like an incredible woman. So congrats, Jessica McLean, on your fourth place finish. Okay. Number four on my list is going to be, I'm sorry if I pronounced the name wrong, Megan Crifton, who actually didn't finish the race. She placed seventh in the 2016 Olympic trials. She was injured for the 2020 Olympic trials. And for this Olympic trials, 2024, she was seven months pregnant when she began the race. Mm. She's racing for two. <laughs> she, she clarified she did get the all clear from her doctors. You know, she qualified, I would imagine, before she was pregnant, got pregnant, and it was, like, never a question in her mind. She was like, yeah, of course I'm going to run this race. Like, she missed her opportunity in 2020 because Mm -hmm. she was injured. She did very well in 2016, so she was like, well, I don't care that I'm pregnant. I'm doing this. It's not an injury. Her husband, Matt McDonald, also ran in the trials this year. So for her, she was like, well, you know, I'm going to be out there anyway cheering him on. I might as well just, like, run the race. One big happy family. (laughs) Our cheer station was, it was a looped course. So we were at mile two, mile 18, and then about 26. She ran by at mile two. And naturally she was like sort of back of the pack. But she ran by and I think just like, you could have heard a pin drop. Everyone was like, um, what? Like this visibly pregnant woman runs by. And I was like, if that is not the power of women right there, like... I don't want to hear anybody complaining. So, th- I have a question about that then. Um, in your research, did you find any, like, dissent about her running, of, like, people judging or, like, negative mm-hmm. comments or anything of, like, oh, this would have been bad for your pregnancy? No. I'm like sure that. that's like, out there, but I also think the algorithm of my, okay, of my everything is set to be I positive. was going to then, like, disagree with, with people who yeah. would dissent. Because, to your point, like, it's her choice. Mm-hmm. She knew she could do it. She got the okay from her doctor. Mm-hmm. Obviously has, like, weighed her options in, in doing this. But, like, to be able to tell herself, this isn't going to hold me back and I'm, I'm still going to accomplish this is unreal. Yeah. And she ended up, so she passed our, our um, cheer station the second time, so around mile 18. She actually ended up dropping out shortly after there. Um, you know, she said... It was just too hot. Like, I don't think she actually cared about finishing. For her, it was more of, like, I want to do this. Like, this baby's going to come out of the womb, and, like, what better way to have a shared experience with your child? Like, I'm not a mother, and and I don't Your child and your husband. Yeah, and so, like, you know, I don't get that personally, but, like, I I can see, like, telling your child when they grow up, like, yeah, I ran the Olympic trials marathon with you seven months, you know, inside of me. Yep, and she also earned her spot there oh for sure ahead of time yep so why not you know she kind of like I would see her as like owing it to herself to see it through Mm -hmm. and notably there were two at least two other pregnant women running she was the most visibly pregnant but still just just a nod to the women out there who you know earned their place and followed through with it so and she when she dropped out of mile 18 she still managed to average a 7.18 pace over the course of the race. I, 
Imagine like strapping a bowling ball to your stomach and then running 18 miles at a 718 pace. Wouldn't see my feet until the end. No. <laughs> and then also want to shout out at least 22 mothers ran the Olympic trials marathon this year. Um, a field of about 150 women. And I think that's really, I was very emotional during this race watching Watching women be so successful, but also hearing the stories of all the mothers in the race, I think this sport has changed so much over the past 10 or 15 years, and it's due to a lot of women. Um, you know, I think about like Kara Goucher and Sarah Hall, who have really forced change, and it, it came from the athletes putting pressure on the people that sponsor them. So Nike has had a very bad reputation yep. for how they treat their women but mothers in particular historically it has been that when women want to have children and they're elite athletes they're just dropped by their sponsors but women have really proven like no I can have my baby and I can have my career too there are a number of women and I wish I wrote their name down who ran this race I know Sarah Sellers was one of them she just had I think it was her third child and some of these women are three to six months postpartum and they're running the races of their lives. So, like, they're just out here proving, like, yeah, give me a year off to have a child and get through the first couple months, and then I'm going to be right back at it. Quick plug for Kara Goucher's book, The Longest Run. It's about so much more than just running. It's about the adversity that she faced as a woman in this industry and how the same type of sponsorships she, she received from Nike were different than her male counterparts. The treatment she received from the coaches was different than her counterparts Um, and then she went through everything you just talked about she started a family returned to the sport received a lot of just flack and and roadblocks for having chosen to do that in her life where a lot of the male counterparts did not have to deal with with any of that it also goes into some of the drug doping scandals that occurred around this time but there's a really a really awesome clip from this past trials of Dakota talking to Kara Goucher on the sidelines and they're both like they're both totally fangirling over each other Dakota's obviously thanking Kara Goucher for going before her and and sort of setting the stage for Mm. for women like her and then and Kara Goucher you obviously see like the mentorship and the emotion in her where she has left her mark on this sport so it's called The Longest Run Uh, it's about so much more than just marathon running it very very highly recommend for everybody yeah and I think You know, one of the reasons I was so emotional at the Olympic marathon trials is, like, I think a lot of people don't realize the, uh, what women have had to do just to have a somewhat level playing field in this sport. Just, (laughs) you have to, like, keep in mind, like, women a hundred years ago literally weren't allowed to participate in this sport. Like, it was believed that anything over 800 meters was detrimental to a woman's health and that they, like, you know, shouldn't do it for those reasons. So, like, women have overcome so much just to get to this point. You know, I think about Bobby Gibb, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, and I can't remember if it's her or somebody else, but there's the kind of iconic photo from that race of her just getting ripped out of the race because she essentially wore a costume to look like a man so she could run this race because it was a men's only race 
And so she ran it, and I think at, like, you know, mile whatever, she was literally physically taken out of the race by men because they were like, you can't run this. Mm -hmm. So just being able to see, like, the progression over the past 50 years of women in this sport is incredible. And then to also see, like, mothers be able to have their careers continue in this sport and that, like, motherhood doesn't necessarily end end your your career as an elite athlete and there's people that are proving that it's not it's not like oh i I think it'll be fine or like you know i can do it type of thing is there's people that are proving that their their times are improving that they're still in the prime of their career and they can they can make their life choices uh at the same time yeah and i think one of the you know i get very passionate about you know women's rights and equality you know one of the issues that women have been dealing with is that often the prize pool for these races is lower for women. So you'll have, you know, a a men's, let's say the men's top finisher gets $100,000. The women's has often been half of that, let's say. And so there's been a lot of work to make that equal and sort of like, why is this the way that it is? There have been a few like pretty notable awards handed out at the end of races and I think about the trail running and ultra running community where there'll be a top winner overall like first place overall and then there's a first place female and there have been a couple races where a woman wins the race overall and then gets both prizes because ooh, oh, she was she was the first person and the first woman. If they're going to set up the race like that, they yeah. have to be prepared for that outcome. Yeah, and so, like, you know, the assumption going into races these days is, like, hey, well, a man is going to win this, so we'll have, like, a first woman's prize. Well, then you better check your ego at the door. Exactly. So there's still a ton of work to be done in this industry. I think I think progress is being made. It's just very frustrating. So, and I... Another person I could talk about all day is Courtney DeWalter, but she has made a ton of changes, especially in the ultra running community where she um, beats men all of the time. She, she, she stops them. <laughs> so anyway. They better I, get used to it. They better get used to it. I think there's a lot of really positive changes coming to running in the next decade or two. But as I'm watching this race, sort of like all of these things are just like, swirling around my head so anyway okay back to my list was that was that number four or number five that was list? number four oh, I thought we're crushing it <laughs> so we've got five and an honorable mention i was like okay i'm gonna put together a list so that we don't go on tangents and no. i saw you writing this list the other day and i'm like you know it's not your story week right <laughs> okay I'm, I'm getting through okay so number five i had to mention some men um, the top two male finishers, Connor Mance and Clayton Young. Such a great story. Such a great story. It was the one-two finish in 20905 and 20906. They have been longtime training partners. They competed together at BYU. They ran side-by-side the entire race. It was wonderful to watch. I'm not, like, a sappy person, but I also know the, the time and effort that goes into these types of races, and what it's like to have a training partner who sees you at your highest highs and your lowest lows and sort of the special bond between the person that you spend hundreds of hours with training for these races. So to be able to run with your training partner and then get a one-two finish is it just beautiful. Mwah. Cherry so I, on top. <laughs> and I will add on to that, and I don't know 
which one it was between the two of them, but one of them was actually like partway through was struggling a little bit. And like, you're right, they were side by side and he said something to his partner and or his training buddy and he said like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of struggling. And he said, just like, get right behind me, mm-hmm. stay with my pace. And then, and then they ran like that yeah. for a while and he kind of drafted him for a bit and they ran together and they like, you could tell however much running is an individual sport yeah. um, that they were working together. There's a, a quick video of them, like, when that happened, one of them reached back, uh, and they, like, high-fived, and then they, they ran the entire rest of the marathon together, yeah. and then one, two finished. Yeah, and it reminds me of the 2018 Boston Marathon, which was the notorious, like, it was, like, 33 degrees, just a, a monsoon of rain, like, it was painful. I was spectating that day, and it was the rain was painful. It was like 50 mile an hour winds, probably the worst Boston Marathon weather in history for a race that is notoriously bad weather. And that was the race that Des Linden won. I was just going to ask, is that the same one that Des Linden? Yeah, but early on in the race, you would have not. She was not the clear winner or the the projected winner. Shalane Flanagan was running that year, and. You knew something was wrong when Shalane actually stopped at a porta potty partway through. The elites do not stop to use the bathroom. That, that they just don't. And so she stopped. And Des actually stopped to wait for Shalane because Shalane was one of the top contenders in that race. And Shalane like gets out of the bathroom. And she's like, "What are you doing?" And Des is like, "Well, I'm I'm waiting for you. Like <laughs> this is what we do." Wow. And it turned out Shalane was having a really tough day, and Des said, "You know." get behind me, I'll block you from the rain, from the wind, from everything. On a day like that, which was huge. And so Des basically wind blocked for Shalane for a while. And then Shalane was like, yeah, today's not my day. Like, go get after it. Yep. And Des ended up winning the race. And, like, if anyone deserved to win that race, it was Des. But it just shows you, like, they're not – they don't have the same sponsor. They don't train together. They're just two, like, iconic – female marathoners from the U.S. who are like, well, we want to see each other succeed. And if that means that one of us has to sacrifice, like, okay. So anyway, um, if you don't know that story, I would recommend, like, YouTubing it. There's videos of all of this happening. It's The storm was no joke. Like, no. In, the, in her book, she talked about a lot of them were given, like, trash bags mm-hmm. because they didn't, they didn't dress for... No this kind of stuff but they were given like trash bags to just try and keep the rain it was yeah. like frozen rain that yeah it, if you're not if you're from the northeast it was a nor'easter which if you're not from the northeast you don't know what that means it is like the equivalent of a hurricane coming through yeah. new england so they were getting like pelted by like frozen yeah. rain so they like just gave them trash bags to try and block the wind and the rain as they're mm-hmm. running this marathon it's yeah. nuts it, it was insane um, anyway, the last thing I want to say about Connor Mance and Glayton Young, they had this ingenious strategy. So elite runners are allowed personal water bottles, basically. They're put on tables. They each have their own. They customize them, whatever. The two of them had stainless steel water bottles. I don't exactly know how they like divided them up between the two of them, but at each water stop, they had one bottle that had frozen hats in it. So they filled it, like, filled it with water and ice and then stuffed, like, packable hats into the stainless steel cup. And they were, like, 
insulated bottles okay. so that even in the heat of the day, they stayed cold. Yep. So every single water stop, they would swap out their hats to be like frozen. You got a new frozen hat on? Yeah. <laughs> I heard this and I was like, this is brilliant. Like, are you kidding? The creativity of these. Yeah. So anyway, congrats to those two. I'll get a little bit more into the drama. They are the only two going to the Olympics for the men right now. I only caught a little bit of that, but the third place finisher for the men, they were saying, like, they don't know yet if he'll actually go, but this is a great finish for him. It puts him in the best spot that he could possibly have. I will get to that. That's my drama. (sighs) All right, I do want to get to the last. So that was my sort of top five performances. I want to get to my honorable mention, my teammate Kim Horner. So she qualified for this race with a time of 2.36.43. The qualifying time was... Just shy of 2.37, yeah. So she was... She was seated very low in this race, so every athlete came in seated. So the people who had the fastest qualifying times were obviously at the top of the list, and the people that came closest to the qualifying cutoff were seated lowest. Essentially, a ranking of, you know, what their time was. She came in seated as 142nd out of a field of about 150. She placed 40th in the race with a time of 236.47. She was only four seconds off of her PR that she day. She stomped her initial ranking. She earned the honor of outrunning her ranking better than any other woman in the entire field. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So coming in at 142nd, she placed 40th. She moved up 100 spots. I'm sorry, 102 spots. Insane. And it just shows you, like, it was a bad day for so many people. I don't know what Kim has been doing in her training, but it's working. She is, so she is on the same race team as me. She's also a PhD student in public affairs at the University of Minnesota. She's brilliant. She got her master's at Oxford. She does, I looked at her CV. It doesn't, it's a different language for me. She does like migration studies and sort of immigration seemingly. So very, very smart. She didn't go to a D1 school. She, She was a D3 runner at Luther College. So she was among you know, some of the D2 and D3 runners in the trials that sort of put in even more effort than maybe the D1 athletes who this was kind of a natural trajectory. So anyway, shout out to Kim. Shout out to Gabby Rooker. She had a very tough day. Um, she still finished, I think it was like 2.30. She was ill during the race. Yeah. She still managed to finish, but it was a tough day for Gabby. I think, you know, it's it's hard to imagine, you know, 70 or 75 sounds really nice. Like, that sounds beautiful. But that is way too hot for a marathon. It's way too hot. And that's part of the reason I hate training for fall marathons is you start your training in, like, April or May, and you're running through the hottest season of the year. Especially in a place like Minnesota, people think it's freezing here, but then the summer it's, like, 100 and humid. Yeah. And you're trying to go out for these long runs, and it is just awful. Okay, we're already 34 minutes into recording. I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you? I should have known this was going to happen. Are you? Okay, so congrats to everybody that I mentioned and everybody who finished and made it to the starting line. I want to talk about some of the changes to the Olympics marathon this year. So historically, the U.S. has sent three men and three women to compete in the Olympic marathon. The Olympic Committee has decided to reduce the size of the field So in 2016, there were 155 men and 157 women, and this is globally. 
In 2020, it was down to 106 men and 88 women. And this year, the field has been reduced even further to 80 spots for the men and women. So they each have 80. So as such, countries now have to unlock spots in order to send athletes to the Olympics. Um, there just isn't enough room for every country oh. to send three of each. Okay. I, I'm not sure if that's a good problem to have or not. Like, I, don't, I don't know enough about it, but... Yeah, so that the, it's a little bit convoluted, but the times that have to be hit to unlock spots, for men, it's 208.10, and for women, it's 226.50. And so the way that this works is throughout the qualifying period leading up to the Olympics, I'll talk about America in particular, American women have to hit, like, get below that number in order to unlock these spots. So let's say Des Linden runs a race and she runs 225. She has unlocked one spot. So you need three American women to run below this to unlock three spots. Wow. So getting back to sort of the men's debacle, there have only been two men who have run under 208.10. Thus, only two spots have been unlocked. So... Connor Mance and Clayton Young, who got the top two spots in Orlando, were the two men who unlocked the spots, which that doesn't have to be how it is. I was, that was going to be my next question is, can you unlock a spot for someone else? Sure can. So if these two were beaten by other runners in the trials, those runners would have gotten the Olympic spots, even though it was... Connor and Clayton, who unlocked the spots. Okay, now it's getting weird. So, again, sorry for pronunciation, Leonard Courier came in third in the trials. This is who you mentioned. But since the men haven't unlocked their third spot in Paris, he doesn't make the team. Unless an American man runs a sub-208 marathon before April 30th. In what, any sanctioned race on their own? Any USATF sanctioned marathon. But. Oh my God, stop. USATF declared that Leonard Career himself couldn't run a marathon to unlock the spot. It would have to be someone else. Why? Unclear. If he did run another marathon before April 30th, and hit that qualifying time, the spot would go to the fourth place finisher. I don't understand. In the that. Olympic trials. Hang on. So it has to be someone else to break 208.10 to get the spot for career. Why can't he just earn his spot? Which is also so convoluted because he didn't run that fast in the trials. Not a single man ran under that qualifying time in the trials. But they just had previously and unlocked the spots. Yeah. Why can't he, like, straight up earn his spot? That's a super That's good question. That's so weird. It's, that is the latest controversy from this. Um, I understand <laughs> having to unlock the spots because now there's a limited number and space that can go to the Olympics. I get it. But let the dude earn his own spot. Sure, like, hold, hold mm -hmm. other USATF races that allow the United States as a whole to get another unlocked spot in the Olympics, mm -hmm. but let that man compete for it, too. You think he's going to want... <laughs> other people to unlock his spot for him? But can you imagine being whoever it is, and there aren't even that many, like, 
I don't even know what like big races there are before April 30th. Like nobody's going to break this time in Boston because Boston's a tough course. So it's like, but can you imagine getting under 20810, unlocking that spot, and then it goes to somebody else who has run slower than you? (laughs) That makes no sense. I would not be happy. Makes no sense. So anyway, that's the latest drama from the Olympics. The women easily got all three of their spots. American distance running right now for the women is unbelievable. They talked about so. that so much. Like, there's so much excitement about the future of the sport. Yeah. Um, especially, so, like, yeah. So the, all of them are so young. It's, it was really cool to hear. The last thing I would say, the, the big question mark in my mind is, going into Orlando, we know, we know that there are these, like, spots that have to be unlocked in order to send American athletes to the Olympics why would the Olympic Committee or the American Committee, whoever it is, choose Orlando? They know that nobody's going to have their, like, optimal race day no in Orlando. No going to be unlocking that spot. Yeah, if you want the men to unlock that 208 spot, you need to go somewhere where, like, the conditions are perfect. And they did not set them up for success to do this. Well, then, now you bring up a point that is a little bit dicey because if you have to unlock these spots ahead of time, you can game the system to put your country in a better place, which is not necessarily putting all the countries on the same playing yeah, field. for sure. Man, that's that's weird. I can see why yeah. it's a little dose of drama mean there. <laughs> okay, I am done. I'm so sorry this took Don't so be. I'm glad we went into that, and I knew it was going to take a while. I was like, no, I was like, this is going to take 10 minutes. It's going to be easy. <laughs> I'm just going to rattle off this list. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I'm glad. Do you... Want the unasked question from last week, or do you want me to go no. straight into my story? Let's get into your story. I'm ready. It's a it's a big shift from what we've been talking about. <laughs> uh, it is not the heartwarming, empowering stories that we've been talking about for the last half hour. Oh, uh, I just wanted to butter everybody up first. Good. Everyone's feeling good. I'll bring them down. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and then speaking of of doing a, something a little bit different, you know, we've we've kind of been sticking to true crime stories or uh, you know abduction stories. I picked something that I'm just very interested in. I've done a, a lot of reading on it uh, over the years. Just kind of piqued my interest from my nuclear background uh, that I just thought was was very interesting. But I'm going to cover the Chernobyl nuclear disaster today. So it's there's no mystery about it. There's no like uh, you know unsolved bit at the end. It's just a historical account of something I'm very interested in. So. First question, how much, if any, do you already know about Chernobyl disaster? I'm embarrassed to answer that question. That's okay. No, if you say none, that's perfect. I mean, I know the bare bones minimum. Wonderful. I'm glad I'm telling it then. That's actually the correct answer. You've been telling me to watch. It was on HBO, the series on Chernobyl. And I will plug that because it is very well done. It's, you know, there's tons of books on this nuclear accident, tons of historical accounts. But that miniseries is specifically based on the one book that I would recommend, which is called uh, Midnight in Chernobyl. This book really like wraps up everything. It's got everybody's account of what happened. It's really not that long of a read, and it's interesting like from start to finish. It doesn't get dry. It doesn't just go into names and dates. I think it's, it's honestly extremely interesting. But I will reference the miniseries because it's so well done. You should absolutely watch it. They got a lot of stuff right. Anyway. So I'll kind of like break it down into the different parts that happened. Because keep in mind, 
you know, the, the disaster happened in one day and then the cleanup happens over the next month and then the fallout from it of what they had to deal with was years later. So the Chernobyl nuclear disaster occurred on April 26, 1986 near the city of Pripyat in northern Ukraine when it was still part of the Soviet Union. Okay, I don't think I know it was that recent. 86? Yeah. Are we? I, I think of like Chernobyl as being like... I was about to say 50 years ago. Well, the, you're, you're not wrong. So, like, the, the height of when people were jumping on nuclear power was the 60s. So, mm-hmm. like, if you say something historical about nuclear power, everyone just jumps to, oh, back in the 60s. Yeah. So you're not wrong. I, yeah, I think I would have said that. 50s or 60s. Yep, yep. So it was 86. It is one of only two nuclear accidents to be rated at the maximum severity in the international nuclear event scale, the other one is Fukushima in Japan in 2011 when there was an earthquake followed yep. by a tsunami. The initial emergency response and subsequent cleanup efforts involved more than 500,000 people and cost an equivalent of $68 billion. Jesus. So, sort of setting the stage of what the Chernobyl nuclear power plant is. So it's really in the middle of nowhere in northern Ukraine. They built a city called Pripyat right next to it to basically be the city that would house everybody that worked at the plant. It had its own community, its own school system, its own infrastructure, uh, but really everybody that worked at the plant, um, this city was built for them. And I'll talk about that a little bit later too. Was this funded by the state of Ukraine or was it a private company? Um, It was entirely funded by the Communist Party of the USSR. So it was under the supervision of the government in Moscow, not in Ukraine, which is a great question because they did not immediately alert the government of Ukraine when this happened, even though it's in Ukraine. The plant itself was owned and operated by uh, the Soviet Union and the Communist Party. I see. So everyone that that were like officials that were in charge of the plant were very high on the chain for the Communist Party. Gotcha. So, I'll start by talking about the the day that this happened. They were going to be running a safety test. The plant has four reactors. It's it's huge. It is like the premier uh, sigil of engineering and energy in the Soviet Union. It's like this huge point of pride for them that they have one of the largest reactors in the world, and it's it's a very you know USSR is very much about their image and how they compare to other countries. So this is a huge piece of that. For many years, the plant had been planning to run a safety test to ensure that the design basis accident could never occur. I'm sorry, for many years they had planned this? Yes, like, they've just been planning to it. run this safety test. And like, I'll tell you about what the test is supposed to cover. The design basis accident is essentially the worst possible case scenario. So you, you design the power plant and then you say, what's the worst possible accident that could happen to this plant? And, you know, everything would be worst case scenario. So they, they think of what that is, which is a total station blackout simultaneous with a rupture in the cooling system. So they'd have like a leak of all their water. Mm-hmm. So under normal conditions, if any of these happen individually, there's a system that would, that would take over and there's, there's like safety things in place if either of these two things happen individually. So under normal conditions, if the station loses electrical power, 
there's diesel generators that would start up automatically and power the pumps to keep water moving into the core and keep it cooling. However, these diesel generators take a minute to start and to get up to power, um, which doesn't sound like very long, but when you're dealing with how much cooling they had to get to the core, a minute without cooling water would actually cause a meltdown. So the minute was a big deal. Separately, if they somehow lost water, like there's a leak in the cooling system, you would lose the ability to put water into the core and again, you'd get a meltdown. So for this, they have an emergency core cooling system that would just pump more water into the system to make up for the leak. Basically, you'd have water coming out, so they're gonna put more water in and try and match how much water is leaking. So the worst case scenario is that both of these happen at the same time, total station blackout and a leak. Yep. Therefore, they would not have electrical power to put more water into the reactor, and the diesel generators would not come online fast enough to give them that electrical power. So the thought was... So the, the primary issue here is cooling the generator. Yes. Okay. Yep, cooling the core that gets infinitely hot. Like, if you don't provide cooling to it, the components that are in there are not... They're physically not able to withstand that amount of heat. If you don't have cooling, it will melt everything in there. Wonderful. Yeah. So... Is that why it's called a nuclear meltdown? It is called oh a meltdown. I'm going to jump straight to that <laughs> because everyone, not everyone, a common misconception, <laughs> a common misconception is that a meltdown is basically like the, the reactor turns into a puddle and just like leaches into the ground and becomes like a molten lava, like uranium pile. But really a meltdown is just the core has gotten so hot that the fuel line splits mm -hmm. or like, like it ruptures because... There's not enough cooling. It gets so hot and it just melts the things that are holding it together. That's a meltdown. It could be even just a tiny little crack that lets the uranium out, but that is considered a meltdown. How does it compare to a two-year-old's meltdown? Oh, my God. <laughs> One I understand far better than a two-year-old's meltdown. There's no rhyme or reason to a two-year-old's meltdown, but I understand nuclear meltdowns. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the test design was to see if um, they could put something in place that would, that would protect against this design basis accident. It was theorized that once the accident occurs, that the electrical turbines that they use to provide energy, that they're you know, making electrical energy and putting out to the rest of the country, that they would be able to provide enough energy as they spun down to power the core cooling system for about 45 seconds they would get like this short window of 45 seconds where they could power the pumps and put water back into the core, which might be enough to bridge the gap. Now you're only talking like 15 seconds mm -hmm. without cooling until the generators come on. So really they were just like theorizing that they could bridge this gap between when they would not have water. Okay, I have a question. Yep. So is this like the... You said that nuclear stuff kind of started in the 60s. Yes. Not started, but like became much more prevalent. It was a prevalent. big race to see yes. one who could make the first sustainable reactor. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of iterations leading up to this that some went well and some did not. There was this and there was also obviously like the arms race for who could weaponize the right. atom. So why is it the, the mid 80s that they're like, you know, we should probably think about safety. Like, was there really no like protocol or idea of what to do in this kind of emergency? Um, there was absolutely uh, safety protocols 
And so they, they'd very likely run a bunch of safety tests for various other accidents that could happen. It just so happened that the design basis reactor, which should be a theoretical worst case scenario, like to have both of these happen would, would be equivalent of a freak accident. Right. But you have to be sure that you would have a system that could protect against it. Right. So this test wasn't necessarily a priority to accomplish. It was more like we need to know at some point, can we protect against the worst possible scenario? Which seems like you would you would want to know that. But they, <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking like as somebody who has done risk management right. work, you have to consider like it, it's a balance between what is the likelihood of this happening and what is the impact? Oh, I agree. Even if something is very low likelihood, which it sounds like this, if the impact is so much greater, you have to consider that. Yep. So to to mitigate that, they've done all the math and the theory behind this to say that, yeah, the turbines would power the core cooling system for about 45 seconds, um, but they just never tried it in practice. And you'll... I don't go much into the test of like the intricacies of it, but running this test to see if it would actually work was a huge process. So they actually like first tried it in 1982. So years before mm-hmm. they first tried to do this test and it failed. Like the, the conditions of the test were not adequate to say that, you know, our results are conclusive that we could protect against this accident. They tried again in a, like running in 1985 and um, the, the actual electrical results that they got were not promising. So they tried to run it again in 1986, which is the one now that we're talking about. Yep. So they've run it in theory. They've done the math on it to say, like, on the low probability that this happened, we might have a, a mitigation for that. <laughs> uh, but to your point, no, there were tons of safeguards in place. They have learned quite a bit. The sophistication of the, the plants at this time were very good. I will tell you there's a lot of culture things about the Soviet Union in the background of this that what? I don't go very much into. There was secrecy. There was a lot of saving face. There was a lot of hushing of accidents that happened. So I'll tell you, at the time that Chernobyl happened in 1986, the USSR had approximately 12 major nuclear accidents prior to that they never publicized. They didn't even tell other nuclear plants within the Soviet Union who could have learned from what happened at these plants and made corrections and fixes and mitigations to like prevent it from happening again. Instead, to save face, they just hushed up these these accidents. And I, like, this is my shocked face. I know. I see the look you're giving me. I, I'm going to cover one other interesting fact later about this, and I, I think this is a very important fact about how... Like, what led up to this happening in the Soviet Union? I mean, I already have the Sicilian Mafia coming after me, so I might as well get the now-defunct USSR coming after me, too. So they've got this test all written up. They've got this procedure they're going to run. It was scheduled to run during the day on April 25th, so the day before Mm -hmm. the accident happened. It was scheduled to run during the day shift on April 25th. The day shift of workers had been told in advance that they would be conducting this test and they received instructions on how to do it. So they got some training. They knew how the test was going to be performed. They were prepared to do it. The test officially began at about 1.06 p.m. 
on the 25th, and the actual performance, so they're setting the conditions, the actual performance of the test is they're going to start the electrical procedure at 2.15. However, right around 2 o'clock, so right before they're going to start the performance of it, another electrical power plant went offline, and the regional electrical grid controller ordered that Chernobyl's reduction in power be postponed because they had to cover the outage <laughs> of another plant not providing electricity. The day shift was then replaced by the evening shift, a not, not really impactful to what happened in the accident, but it is kind of an indication of their standards for safety of what you were talking about. In order to run this test, they had to take that core cooling system offline so that if they did have a leak, this core cooling system would not actually automatically turn on. Right. They had, to, they had to take it offline to run the test. They've been delayed all day now running into the evening. This whole time, they've had that core cooling system offline. No one turned it back on because they're kind of waiting for the test to happen, but they've been postponed because they need to keep supplying electricity. So it just kind of like shows you the lack of consideration for safety and the culture that they've built that doing things like this is okay. So not until 11.04 p.m. did the grid controller give Chernobyl permission to reduce their power and continue with the test. This is well past the day shift, and the evening shift is almost done. They're going to turn over at midnight. So it's, 11, it's about 11 p.m. Do all of the people working at Chernobyl know what's going on? Um, I would say in general, yes, they know like the operation schedule day to day. But the things that you're expected to do on your shift might be very different than another shift. Right. So you would kind of prepare for those things honestly, like maybe like study up a little bit or refresh on what the procedure is like before you go into your shift. So if you're then being asked to do this massive test that you hadn't prepared for is a huge ask. Yeah. It's honestly like a big like planning safety violation uh, to like spring this on a new team. So the night shifts who have not been informed that they would be doing this test, nor have they been instructed on how to do it, they have little time to prepare and get ready to start. A man named Anatoly Dyatlov, deputy chief engineer for Chernobyl, would supervise the night shift and the completion of the test. Is he the son of the Dyatlov Pass guy? This is the only reason I knew how to pronounce that <laughs> name is because I've Dyatlov. researched it. Yeah. Uh, probably no relation. There's probably a lot of Dyatlovs mm, in true. the Soviet <laughs> Union. Um, so Dyatlov while one of the test's chief authors and high-ranking operators at Chernobyl, he was described as brash, severe, condescending, insulting, and would strike fear in his subordinates. My kind of guy. Great leader. <laughs> so two other individuals in the control room for the number four plant. Remember, they had four total, and we're going to be specifically talking about the number four plant, were Alexander Akimov and Leonid Toptunov. As the senior reactor control engineer, Toptanov was only 25 years old, and he'd only been working in this plant for three years. I'm sorry, three months. Only for three months. Wonderful. So we're still, we're still in the test. As the night shift began the test and started lowering power, abnormal conditions occurred in the core that the operating team didn't fully understand. The core is meant to operate at 3,200 megawatts. The core is happy. The core is humming. I'm it's, sorry. It's, is that it? <laughs> that's not a temperature. Is that a, like a power? That's a power output. <laughs> okay. 3,200 megawatts is a power output. Okay. 
So that's like 100% power. The core is very stable at this power. Okay. Um, like there's no transients, nothing's changing. Uh, it's pretty much self-sustaining at 3,200 megawatts. Okay. And that is a shit whack of power. Um, a shit whack. It's a metric fuck ton of power. Okay. Uh, a shit whack metric or imperial? Shitwack is the imperial version of fuckton. Okay, okay. Okay, so they're supposed to be, like, typically at 3,200 megawatts. <laughs> Shitwack. <laughs> what? <laughs> I could use I the, know a fuckton, but a shitwack is new to me. Um, good, I'm glad I could. <laughs> Thank you for the education. It's just, a, it's just a unit conversion. That's the only thing I've learned today yeah, is shitwack. <laughs> it's just a unit conversion is all. <laughs> okay, so... While they're typically at 3,200, the test is conducted at 700. So it's a pretty pretty low power. And I will, I will preface this by saying that a reactor of this size is actually unstable at low power. It likes to be at power, at full power. So they're supposed to lower down to 700 megawatts. But they found themselves at 30 megawatts as they lowered power. So basically, they shut down. I'm not going to go too much into... The reactor physics of what happens Please here. Please do not. <laughs> we will lose any That's and all fine. listeners. <laughs> Essentially, they did not understand the transient that was happening in the core. When you change power, you actually change the amount of like core poisoning that's going on, where the core will actually lower the power on its own. You need the reactor to be at power to alleviate this. Think of like um, the poison builds up. And the only way to burn it off is to be at a higher power. Okay. So what they've done is lowered power and built up a bunch of poison. So this has, like, killed the reaction. That's why they went all the way down to 30 when they were only aiming for 700, which they did not understand. Same. <laughs> so Toptonov, the reactor operator, he begins to try and manually raise power back up. He's trying to get back up to that 700 so they can run the test. Mm -hmm. But he's fighting against the core itself because of all this poison that's built up. So the, the core wants to lower power, and he's trying to fight it and raise power back to 700. Because of all the poisoning, over the next 20 minutes, he's been manually raising power. He's only able to top out at about 200 megawatts. Boy. He's still at a fraction of what they're supposed to be at for this test. They can't get any higher, and they need to conduct the test. So Dyatlov orders, like, that's good enough. We're going to run it at 200. Even to achieve the 200 megawatts that they were able to get, they've pulled all of the control rods out. Like, there's no safeguards for the reactor anymore. There's nothing to slow down the reaction. Even though it's at a relatively low power, they've taken away all of their ability to control the reaction. Okay. You can see where this is going. Wonderful, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they do not understand the unstable position they put the core in. So, at... 1.23 on April 26th, so it's early, early in the morning, the electrical portion of the test begins. However, due to the unstable conditions that the operators created, the fluctuations in power now cause a runaway reaction. All three operators watched in confusion as power began to rise uncontrollably without any of them doing anything to cause it. They're not flipping switches, they're not moving rods, but they're watching power just skyrocket. You know, I think I've maybe seen the HBO miniseries. Now that you mention <laughs> this, this it. This all just sounds so familiar. Now that you mention it. Yeah. So they see power just going uncontrollably up. And so he presses the emergency shutdown button to attempt to just 
stop the reaction, shut down the core. But there's a design flaw in how the core is built. The control rods that I mentioned before are how you slow down the reaction, but the tips of these rods had graphite on them. Which just is the tip? Just the tip. The graphite was actually used in the core to speed up the reaction. So the rods are all the way out, and as soon as they're inserted, the first thing that the core sees is the graphite, and it speeds the reaction up more. Thus, power skyrockets before any of the actual control rods can do anything to slow the reaction. The phenomenon, so when you, when you do an emergency shutdown, it's called a scram, but this phenomenon is called a positive scram because they actually tried to shut down the reactor and it's caused power to go up instead. So it's called a positive scram effect. And this was not the first time that this has happened in this type of reactor. It happened and was noticed in another Soviet plant all the way back in 1983. They found this design flaw and saw this happen in one of their cores, but it was covered up because it would take tons of resources to change the design of this core. And they've already been, they're operating like some 14 reactors of this design throughout the Soviet Union. So the design flaw was covered up and the results that they got from this positive scram were described as a one-time anomaly. Mm-hmm. I'm almost done with all of the nerdy technical Thank you. nuclear <laughs> physics part. Okay, so I had said before, the power of the reactor likes to sit right around 3,200. Power reaches 30,000 megawatts. Heat is created so rapidly within the core that the fuel cells crack and rupture, and this is now the part where we get a meltdown. So you've officially caused a meltdown. There were two main explosions that happened. The first happened due to the rupture of the fuel cells. There was so much heat built up in the core without any water going to it that everything that's in the core, all the water that's already there, turned to steam. And from water turning to steam, increases pressure, and it blew the top right off the core. Just just popped its lid right off. Um, This blast sent the pressure vessel, like the lid to it, straight through the ceiling and the roof of the number four reactor building. The second blast... That must have been really cool to see, though. (laughs) It Can literally you imagine just, like flying above that and being like, "Whoa!" It literally just flipped its lid <laughs> and shot everything up out the top of the building. So the core and the the containment vessel are think of like this big trash can looking thing <laughs> inside the building. The top of that trash can blew off and then blew the roof off the building from this explosion. I can just see this twenty five year old kid being like, "Sick, bro." <laughs> Well, he wouldn't think it's too sick in a couple days. He was sick in a He'd couple be days. He'd be very sick. He was sick in a couple days. The second blast occurred only a couple seconds after. So since now there's no water in the core and air rushes in, it instantly ignites everything that's in there. All the components and everything that are normally housed within the pressure vessel ignite, and there's a second explosion. Second explosion then causes all of the fuel cells the graphite blocks, any overheated material from the depths of the core to be ejected all over the plant. They just, not, so the first one basically blows the lid off. The second explosion just ejects all of that like lava goo of, of uranium that's in there and just rains it down on the plant. Mm-hmm. At this point, there's no lid on the reactor. There's no water in the core. All of the internal components to the vessel itself are on fire. 
one of the operators describes that he saw a beautiful laser-like beam of blue light, which was actually the reactor ionizing the air around it. I told you they thought it was cool. Yeah, they thought it was beautiful. So now they've got a reactor that's open and on fire. So I'm going to switch into kind of how the, like, firefighting and containment and, like, first response to this. Did they bring marshmallows? Maybe, but those would be some some radioactive marshmallows. Well, they're going to be sick anyway. You might as well enjoy it. Everyone got sick. (laughs) Everyone got sick. Okay, number four reactor is now completely exposed to open air. It's on fire, and it's raining debris around the plant. Number three reactor is right next to number four, Mm. is being hit by flying, burning (laughs) debris. The person who's in charge, there's an entirely different team in reactor number three. The person in charge for this night shift wanted to shut down number three reactor for safety. Makes sense, yeah. Makes sense. But the chief engineer, Nikolai Fomin, who is one of the main characters on the show, would not allow it. He simply gave the operators some respirators and some iodine tablets to protect against the radiation and told them to keep working. Yikes. USSR. Okay, firefighters began arriving to put out the fire. There's a firefighting team in Pripyat not far away. First on the scene was a fire brigade led by Lieutenant Volodymyr Privyak. He died on May 11th of acute radiation sickness. Did he know how to drive the fire truck? He probably had a fire truck with a throttle to make it go a little bit faster. USSR, just ahead of the game. Not one of those lame ones with pedals. Okay, the firefighters were not told how dangerous the smoke or the debris were and thought it was just an electrical fire in the plant. We didn't know it was the reactor. No one told us. That was a quote from one of the one of the firefighters. There was a story of three firefighters going up to the roof of number four reactor, but never coming back down again. So I'll talk about the roof more as we keep going. But remember that the the roof has like blown off and all of the debris came raining down on it. So they went up there and they never came back down. The fire continued to burn until May 10th exposing all firefighters and first responders to nearly lethal doses of radiation. And I'm going to talk about the radiation levels. For reference, a lethal dose of radiation is about 100 Rontgen per hour. Just, just remember the number 100. Some of the worst areas experience 5.6 per second, which is equivalent to about 20,000 Rontgen per hour, <laughs> meaning that the workers in some of these areas would receive a lethal dose of radiation in less than a minute. What this is doing then, so it's not like, if you stood in this spot long enough, yes, it would kill you, but if they're there for around a minute, they would leave and potentially not know that they just received a lethal dose of radiation. It would be, you know, days or weeks later that they would experience all these symptoms Mm. and then die a horrible death. Mm. For like very severe acute radiation sickness, the first thing to go is your your bowels basically melt. Like, they, they no longer maintain their physical integrity, and they just kind of, like, turn to jelly inside of you. I feel that. The next thing. <laughs> I think it's very similar to uh, eating dairy when you have a dairy allergy. <laughs> it probably just melts your just, insides. Just melt. Yeah. Nothing's intact in there anymore. I'm sorry. I'm so insensitive. <laughs> The next thing would be their skin. So, like, their insides melt, and then their skin just kind of, like, oozes off of their body. Yeah, I've seen photos from Chernobyl, and it's it's horrifying. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. So, 
here was the flaw that happened in terms of like the radiation levels in the area. The plant had some dosimeters that they could use to measure like the area's radiation levels, but those only went up to 3.6 Ronkin per hour. That was the maximum reading on there. What? Because like if, if you're using it just to kind of survey the area whether you don't expect there to be much radiation, it would it would read somewhere like midline on this on this gauge. But if you're using it for an emergency, this is not the dosimeter you want to use. You need to have like both though. You need to have like a baseline one and then like an oops one. So the oops one was locked in like a safe that they couldn't get to. What? It was very expensive. It read like way higher, hence the the oops one. Yeah, but you got to have like like on the wall or something. Yes, you don't but they knock like it, away. it was it was very like finely built and expensive. So they like they only had one of them and it was kept locked. So they couldn't even get to, they use these other dosimeters and they go up and they, obviously they peg at the top at 3.6, but they all said, oh, it's only at 3.6 Ronkin per hour. That's not that bad. Like the radiation levels are not bad. Do you think they actually believed that? Um, at first, yes. So when they're doing like the initial firefighting and containment, yes, they believe that because a lot of them were in denial that they had even blown up the reactor. Like the... The fact that the reactor is open, they thought it was just a fire. Like, all the firefighters think they're just responding to a fire. Nobody thinks that the reactor is actually open. And then if they see the reading is only 3.6, they're like, oh, the radiation levels are fine. The reactor is still intact. Well, right. But if if the max is Mm 3.6 and it's at the max, why is your natural inclination to be like, ah, it's 3.6 and not like... Ah, there's a possibility it's higher than 3.6. Uh, that is that is the main flaw in how they went about this, was they used a dosimeter that didn't go high enough. So just for reference, 3.6 is roughly the amount that you would get from like one chest x-ray, which is very normal, very safe. Well, isn't that why they put the big like lead jacket on top of you or something? Um, well, like they would put it on your other whatever you're not getting x-rayed they would put this vest on you just because like why add radiation when you don't have to add a little spice yeah right a little salt and pepper on me (laughs) um but 3.6 is about like how much you would get for a chest x-ray 20,000 is like you know 10,000 chest x-rays just right all in a row so if you sat in the chair and got 10,000 x-rays that's what it would be like. Most of the initial, like un- unsurprisingly, most of the initial responders or operators that were present in the plant at the time of the accident were dead within three weeks. So the initial response rate right, is putting out the fire, which lasted until May 10th. Now the... Hold on. The incident was the 26th? Yep. And it took until May 10th to put out the to fire? To put the fire out, yeah. Oh, my God. Yep. Um, well, they couldn't, like, they couldn't really get close to it. Like, firefighters just kept, like, they would get close and just, like, drop dead. Oh. Um, so they got the fire out. The reactor is still open, and there's still debris everywhere. So switching to right after the accident again, talking about, like, evacuation efforts. The city of Pripyat was built pretty much for the sole purpose of serving the nuclear power plant. This was very common in the Soviet Union to have a very cookie-cutter city 
to house everybody that works somewhere. Yeah. Like the plant officials would get the nicer apartments in in the city, um, and then like families could you know work. You yeah. know they could. They make work a little at restaurants. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was very very common to do this in the Soviet Union uh, because then everybody is assigned something. You go to, you don't get to choose your occupation. You don't get to choose where you live. You're assigned everything. The city, unsurprisingly, was not immediately evacuated. Within a few hours, people began to feel ill, suffer from headaches, have metallic tastes in their mouths, and the worst cases involved uncontrollable coughing and vomiting. Again, their insides are starting to boil. Mm -hmm. The only report to any official outside of the power plant in a nearby city was that there had been a fire at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, but it was extinguished and everything was fine. The day after the accident, a commission was created to investigate the accident, headed by Valery Legasov, first deputy director of the Kurchatov Institute of Atomic Energy. In the miniseries on HBO, he's the main character. Okay. He does a very good job. The actor does. <laughs> uh, good yeah. Legasov and his team flew to Chernobyl and quickly realized the actual seriousness of the radiation levels and risk of exposure. So it took this outside team to come in and say, like, hey, you don't have a lid on your reactor. We just flew over it. And the, the radiation levels are not what you're saying they are. Not 3.6. Exactly. Not until April 27th did they order the evacuation of Pripyat. So it's been at least 24 hours since the accident. Residents were told that they would only be evacuated for three days and that they could come back. So many people left nearly everything behind and they only took essentials. And that's why today Pripyat looks like such a ghost town is everyone just up and left in one single day and oh. never came back. The next day, the evacuation radius was increased to 10 kilometers and then 10 days after that, it was expanded to another 30 kilometers. Over the years, it's changed shape just a little bit, but that exclusion zone remains to this day. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's where it gets, here's where it gets kind of interesting. On April 28th, so two days after the accident, the Forsmark nuclear power plant in Sweden started having radiation detection alarms go off. So in any nuclear power plant, you'd have detection alarms to say like, we're having a radiation leak. Mm -hmm. And you'd have alarms that would go off and say like, the radiation levels have spiked, you have a problem, like you need to either look into this or do something. Right. So in Sweden, their alarms start going off. They start running tests and looking at their own plant. Some initial determination, they decide that it's not coming from them. It has to be coming from somewhere else. So Sweden contacts the Soviet Union and asks if there's anything that's happened at their nuclear power plants. The Soviet Union obviously denies but it was only after the Swedish government said that they're going to file an official alert for other countries. And the Soviet Union finally says, okay, yes, we've had an accident at our Chernobyl plant. The plant in Sweden that was detecting this high level of radiation and their alarms are going off was 600 miles away from Chernobyl. Yeah, I just opened the map. Like I knew in my head that Sweden and Ukraine are not close. They're they're not close. No, it was almost a thousand miles away that the radiation detectors are going off and saying something is wrong in your own plant. Yikes. The radiation detectors are meant for the Forsmark plant. Yeah. Um, so, and I mentioned this before, but 
the Soviet Union had many nuclear accidents before this. They just never reported them. Right. The only reason that this one got out is another country's dosimeters start alarming. I bet that one wasn't locked up. No, they actually had their shit together. <laughs> can always count on the Swedes. So that's the only reason it actually went public, was another entire country realized something was wrong. Yikes. Back to sort of the plant cleanup, right? The fire is out, but they still got debris everywhere. So months after the explosion and the evacuations, the problem then becomes how do you clean up the remains of the number four plant? There's still approximately 100 tons of radioactive debris on top of the roof of this building, and eventually that has to get removed before you can do any type of like cleanup and containment efforts to sort of seal the plant. They tried using robots, like we're just little remote-controlled cars that would go up there and push the debris. They're literally just going to push it from the roof back into the core and just make this pile and then bury it all. So they got Wally up there. They've got Wally up there that's like trying to trying his darndest <laughs> to push Poor Wally. some some rocks and cement and everything that's from the from the plant back into the hole that it came from. Think of like pushing something like off this cliff into a volcano. <laughs> but the radiation levels on top of this roof were so high that it would just fry the electronics in the robots. Like they would go up there, drive a little bit and then just die. They would basically just be rendered useless. They used something like 60 robots, and they all just got fried. Okay. How many times do you need to send a robot and it dies before you learn your lesson to stop sending you, robots? Oh, you will... That's not even, like, the crazy number of what they've sent up to this roof. Like, do not underestimate the <laughs> amount of shit that the Soviet Union is willing to throw at a problem. And maybe, like, maybe one robot was able to push one rock, and then it would, that would be all it could do, and then they'd send another one up. So the robots were not working out. So in true Soviet fashion was to have workers from the military go up and shovel the debris back into sort of this volcanic mouth. It was after they had tried robots, so they coined them bio-robots, which is horrible. But they just sent a ton of people up there to shovel debris back into the core. So, because of the radiation levels, these soldiers could only spend a maximum of 40 seconds on the roof before they would get a potentially lethal dose of radiation. They would go up there, they would run onto the roof, shovel whatever they could in 40 seconds, and then run back out, and that was it. They would do it one time. Each soldier would just complete one iteration and then go back, and then someone else would go in. The soldiers were dubbed the Chernobyl liquidators. It took approximately 4,000 of them, and each of them averaged a dose of 25 rems. So a quarter of a lethal dose was the average. I mean, I guess that's better. It's not ideal. It's, it was a solution. At the same time, there was an attempt to pile sand on top of the core by dropping it from helicopters and just basically having like a bucket of sand mm -hmm. and just dumping it. But the same problem happened with the robots. You can't fly over the core because it would just shred the electronics in the helicopter. Yeah. So they couldn't, they couldn't get close enough, but they, that did not stop them from attempting this. They, this might it. be a stupid thought, but like, why did they feel the need to, clear off the roof like why didn't they just evacuate and like 
think of a solution somewhere else. They have a solution in mind, and that's they're basically going to put a big dome around yes. it, but they wouldn't be able to construct the dome with all of the radioactive material on top. Oh, they needed okay. to like clear it off so they it's could like seal the stuff it, on know. top. Yes, that's an, okay, okay. That's the cleanup that they're trying. There's material okay. everywhere, and all the material they're shoveling is riddled with radiation. Okay. So like, even the rocks that they would walk past that have been blown from you know there's rocks and cement that have been blown from the core, even those are giving off radiation. So it was something like 600 pilots dropped more than 5,000 tons of sand and clay over thousands of flights nearly none of this ever actually touched the core. They're trying to like fling it off to the side because they can't fly right over it. Yeah. Once enough cleanup had occurred, the next step was to contain the remainder of the debris. They're just going to put a big case around it and kind of, they're just going to put a big case around it and just kind of like put it to death. Plans to create a steel and concrete containment dubbed the sarcophagus. I knew you'd like that one. (laughs) I have heard this before. So I've either... Watched that doc, what is it, doc, not docu series, but sure. a mini series on Chernobyl or yeah. something else. Yeah, and then there's something something a little bit more recent as well. So they had the sarcophagus. Construction for this actually began in late May, so you know about a month after the accident occurred, and it was completed in November. So there were still high levels of radiation as they're constructing this sarcophagus. So it was mostly like remote controlled cranes, with the operator then being behind like a lead lined wall. Okay. What's more recent, which they've definitely like covered documentaries and series on both. So they had the sarcophagus, and then more recent, so like 2016, they completed like the new Chernobyl containment facility, yeah, which is remember that. much, much larger, more modern. It's actually got a remote-controlled crane inside it to continue with the cleanup. But it's, you know, the initial sarcophagus was just kind of a shell. Yeah. of concrete and steel. The new Chernobyl containment is huge. Yeah, I see that. So did they just put that over it the... It is over everything. Okay. The sarcophagus is still in there. They didn't take that away and then put the new one on. It's so ominous. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just going to be like that forever. Wow. So that is kind of the story. Are you ready for some casualty numbers? <laughs> no, but sure. Okay, the original blast killed two workers and severely injured two others. Okay. In the immediate aftermath of the cleanup involving plant workers and firefighters, 237 people were hospitalized, of which 134 were experiencing very, very severe acute radiation poisoning. So the so their insides melted. The insides melting ones, yes. Everyone kind of got some level of acute poisoning, but the, the like, level four ones is where, like, the, you're, you're just going to melt. 28 workers died within the following three months. Surprisingly, however, cancer cases from residents in Pripyat for adults did not rise in the coming years. But cases of child thyroid cancer mm-hmm. skyrocketed in the next 10 years. So it was mostly affecting children, specifically the thyroid Fun fact, that's actually what the iodine pills are for, is to prevent that. Of the Belarusian and Ukrainian workers that assisted in the cleanup, some 6,000 casualties related to long-term health issues 
were reported up until about 1995 when they stopped counting. The official number that the Soviet Union reports for the number of casualties as a result of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster is 31. Thirty-one. Again, this is my surprised face. You know, I love this story. I know it's like very dark and not a happy ending. But I, <laughs> what I do you love about this? I mean, that's easy for me to say. I said I loved last week's story, and there's no happy ending. Yeah. Do you just love that it's nuclear? I love that and... it's nerdy and nuclear. There's so much background to the story that goes into like the culture that they had created, the materials that they used, and why the the processes and safeguards that they cut corners on. Like I think there's so much to this story other than just an explosion. So I have a question. So I googled um, I googled photos of the sort of new containment building. Very impressive, very shiny. The pictures of the people in this, like they're not wearing anything special. So is there like no longer dangerous levels of radiation around Chernobyl? Is it all contained? I mean, I know this is a dumb question. Is it all contained within that building? Um, for the most part, it is contained within that building. There's always going to be some levels of radiation. It's very likely that um, the amount of time that they're spending in each of these areas is heavily monitored. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, being on the submarine, there's areas of higher radiation than others. And if you go into these areas, you can't be there for more than an hour because it's just taking unnecessary risk. It's not going to be deadly or you're not going to get sick, but it's just unnecessary risk towards your own personal radiation level. I see. So they're probably monitoring the time that they spend in different areas very heavily. But to your point about not having any type of protective gear, almost none of the workers and initial responders had any protection like I'm, the, I mean now though yes because I know the radiation levels go down over time but isn't it like with Chernobyl it's going to be like thousands of years it's going to it's going to be forever it's going to outlast us yeah well yeah no you're right and then there's been other studies of whether or not like it's affected the water table in the region mm-hmm. there's a, there's the Pripyat River right next to it there's been studies on the animals in the area yeah because isn't the place like I don't want to say overrun because it's, but like, isn't there a ton of wildlife that's like moved into the area because there's no yes, people? Yes, it's completely abandoned. It was already in the middle of nowhere, so it was yeah. already surrounded by forest. But there's tons of wildlife that now live in like Pripyat, the city. Yeah. There's studies on like mutations in animals. There's studies on uh, the amount of like heavy nucleides that are now in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, unsurprisingly, they lied about like how much was in the water. They did testing on the water in the river and they lied about the levels but then just miraculously all of the drinking water started coming from a different river without telling anybody. There's all sorts of aftermath studies. The actual like number of cancer cases and mutations that have come from this is heavily debated because you can't necessarily attribute right. mutations straight from this accident. So there's some there's some accounts that are tens of thousands of cases. Yeah. And this official one here says, you know, in 1995, they stopped counting at 6,000. 6, I think it's a, it's a horrible story, but it's also incredibly interesting and 
nerdy and technical, and, and I highly recommend the docuseries. Well, I'm curious. So following this incident, did the Soviet Union update their other plans? That's a great question. They did. Eventually, okay. so they, they did have to acknowledge the design flaw. And, and you'll see in the docuseries, the head of the committee to do this investigation, he publicly pointed out this design flaw. And he was watched by the KGB for the rest of his I was, life. I was going to say, and then he suddenly disappeared. No, he was not He was not offed, but he was followed the rest of his life because of outing this, this design flaw. So because it became public, because the materials that they were using in the in the plant were made public and all the corners that they were cutting they did have to go back and, and redesign some of these some of these reactors which was like 14 reactors in yeah. the country well that was depressing <laughs> sorry you want to go back to olympics <laughs> no, actually speaking of depressing do you want to <laughs> and, and you <laughs> you you talked about your story last week and you have a follow-up from it I do, I do, and I thank you for reminding me. Um, so in last week's story, I mentioned that um, it's either Sylvie or Sylvia. I interchangeably used those names in the podcast last week. I apologize. And Ginny. And Ginny. Um, but the youngest solder daughter. Solder daughter? Solder daughter. I mentioned that she is still alive and doing advocacy work for the family. Um, she actually passed away in 2021, I was doing, I was looking more into the case after we recorded, which is classic Riley. My turn for a shot Um, face. And found her obituary. So all of the known living solder children have now passed away. Obviously, questions remain about the others, but I believe she was 70 when she passed away, and she was the youngest at the time of the fire. So the other children would be in their 70s and 80s. And remind me how old she was at the time. Did she have she any recollection recollection of it? The only thing she remembered was the screams. Eesh. So she was two. It was her earliest memory. Can you imagine uh, growing up where like you have this mystery about your family and that, like, she grew up then with her mom looking for yeah. like half of her family. No, it's I I can't imagine. So she has passed away. I just want to give that update also depressing. So I don't know what kind of advocacy work exists now outside of the family, but that's that. What's our recording time at? <laughs> just, just say it. It's longer than an hour. Okay. This is the first time I actually think we're, we're cutting, coming up on how long we have the booth for. Well, yeah, I, we, got, we got 10 minutes until we get booted. Is your question sub ten minutes? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Well, it's for you, so you can, <laughs> you're gonna have to keep. It. <laughs> oh god, it's definitely not ten minutes. Then. <laughs> okay, ask away, and I'll try to keep my answer concise. Oh, then you're gonna laugh as soon as I ask it because it is not a short topic. For oh god. <laughs> okay, I was gonna ask last time, and because this has come up in like class projects and everything, but it could also just be like a fun question. Why? Or you, you love Patagonia. That's already a fact. Oh, I love Patagonia, yes. Just tell me why you love it so much in more than just, like, why they're good clothing. <laughs> um, let's see. I guess I just have, like, very... It's multifaceted. I have very fond memories. Is it less than 10 minutes multifaceted? Um, <laughs> I'll do my best. No promises. 
I have very fond memories when I was a child of, you know, they're kind of like iconic cinchilla, like snap pullover fleeces. Yep. So we had, so me and my two brothers had the most like chaotic prints that they made of those. And so I remember having those as a kid and just like wearing them out until they were, there was like nothing left. And so I just remember like, Wearing, I don't know why, it's so dumb, like wearing Patagonia as a child and just like, I had a very fun childhood, so that's fun. And then like getting to adulthood, I just, I love the, first of all, the quality of their clothes is incredible. I've never had like any kind of an issue with Patagonia clothing, but if I did, they're very good about like, they'll either try to fix it for you or give you a replacement, something like that. So they're, they're, um, Customer service and like commitment to their quality is top notch. Next, their commitment to the environment and sort of their whole brand messaging of the purpose of their clothing is to be taken outside and like do your best to destroy it. Like, they're not, though they have become like a very expensive and like sort of top of the line outdoor brand. That is not, like, their target market is not, like, luxury. It's, like, we want this to last a long time in your outdoor adventures and, like, see what you can do to our products. Like, where are you going to take it? So if you look at, like, their marketing, you know, all of their all of their ads and campaigns is, like, people out. Like, their brand storytelling. Their brand storytelling. No, it's it's camping. It's hiking. It's running. It's, it's all these things. Um, and as a runner and as an athlete they work with some really cool athletes that are huge environmental advocates um, I think about Claire Gallagher who's an ultra runner she I believe she's a lawyer or like in some way like her professional work is very much advocating for the environment so they find athletes that are very like in line with what they want to do as a company and so I just I think sort of their brand image, but also what they do for the environment is important to me. Yeah, I mean, I... I think with the price thing, like, if you're going to make something that is built to last nearly forever, yeah, then you could probably charge a premium, especially yeah. if you're going to repair it yeah. when it gets damaged. Yeah. So, I love Patagonia. <laughs> and on a little bit more positive note. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't, I haven't even opened up the agenda for this <laughs> I've got it. We covered everything. I would say, um, we, now that we're a little bit more, um, organized and like official with this podcast, we <laughs> set a goal to record on Thursdays or Fridays and release on Sundays. And I have done a Poor job. I did not set myself up for success. Well, a two-hour episode is not going to be helping your case. <laughs> no. And then, like, you know, I'm looking at my schedule for this week. It's Friday morning right now. I work all day today and all day tomorrow. And then the Super Bowl is Sunday. So I'm like, well, it's going to get edited when it gets edited. <laughs> sorry, avid listeners. Yeah, sorry. This might be another Wednesday episode, But also, please but... follow us on social media and email us questions. Yes. And if you have any suggestions for topics that you'd like to hear about, um, please, please write in. 
I think that's it. My stomach is growling. All this talk about nuclear radiation and <laughs> intestines <your> melting. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's all we got. That's it. I mean, if you want me to keep going about Patagonia, I could. No, you're at your limit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've been cut off. <laughs> all right. See you next week. See ya.